can it be? Are we really doing this right now? This is Young and Dumb, episode 18, I believe. Um, but the, the first episode in the past nine months. My name is Joe. I am one of your hosts, and I'm here with my good friend and now roommate, Prasanna. What's up, everyone? I feel like it's incorrect to just continue the episodes, <laughs> <laughs> like, shamelessly acting as if there's some continuity with our podcast saying this is episode 18 and like episode 17 was a year and a half ago okay it was nine months ago to be clear and are you are you saying we should erase our history no no because i think it's good i think it's good to keep it because i don't want to start a new podcast or anything like that this is this is like a record like a document of our lives at this point because like, if we keep it going now, after such a long break, then there's no break that's too long not to keep it going. You know what I mean? It's a great point. And we can also um, use a, a different categorization system. It can be, like, episode A. True. Episode Roman, Roman numeral one. Depending on, like, the status of our lives at any given point, we can switch the documentation. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that this is a new era of, of Young and Dumb. I'd agree. Uh, I haven't listened to any of our old episodes in, in a long time, but I, I'm feeling if we if we listen back, we we see that things have changed, you know. Definitely. My entire view of the world has <laughs> changed. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think the one thing that we'd be uh, remiss to, to not bring up is in one of our old episodes, we talked about the study that showed that uh, eating red meat was, you know, a carcinogen. could have the same, like, cancer-causing effects, I think, as, like, smoking a cigarette or something like that. And at the time, we were talking about how we knew all these things about how we shouldn't eat meat, but we still did it. But now we've reached moral, moral ascendancy, as you might put it. Yes. And we you don't. You took that from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um... I think it was cool becoming a vegetarian because I realized it's actually not that difficult to do things that you believe in. Like once you take the first step, kind of, you adjust to things pretty quickly. I think that's what I've learned. Like we are act humans are actually really good at adjusting to any scenario, and there's actually a lot of food. That's not meat that tastes pretty good. So it wasn't like a big sacrifice. <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, I had to push back a little bit, though, because I feel like you, <laughs> your efforts to become <laughs> vegan were not. <laughs> I, don't think you could, I, could, I don't think you could use I the same I didn't think we were going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go for you? So, I mean, I, I think there was probably a stretch of three or four weeks where I might have eaten dairy products once or twice in that entire period of time. But you really put me on the spot here <laughs> because, I, I mean, basically, I guess it it wasn't like I was really feeling like I'm missing something by not eating dairy during that time 
but I think there was an element to like when I wasn't focused on it like I kind of put my guard down and then I would be at like Cordova and the queso Diablo would be there and if you don't have your defenses up and your senses are overtaken by what's directly in front of you that it's it's like almost like it just sneaks in there man it's not like a conscious decision like oh like I feel so bad and I'm doing this it's like yeah like yes you want queso I said yeah Diablo queso Diablo please but they also they'll be like what meat they don't even be like, what kind of meat do you, or do you want meat? They'll be like, what meat do you want? They don't even give you the option. So you, you, you somehow, you say strong with the meat eating, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a part of me that feels like I can justify meat eating less than dairy product eating, but I've read too much about it to really have that defense anymore. Mm-hmm. Like... There's a lot of torture and killing that results directly and only from the production of dairy. So, basically, I'm a hypocrite is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, everyone has to start somewhere, though. And, I mean, I, I've i never uh, attempted to be vegan. Um, I, I try to, like, minimize uh, my intake of dairy and, and animal products. I won't, like, cook with eggs or buy, like, milk or cheese or anything. But it's like you said, especially, I mean, like, being on campus in the swing of the school year, there's a lot of events with free food, and that food, it'll be just pizza a lot of the time. Veganism is really a lifestyle change in a way that vegetarianism is not. Like, veganism requires you to really pay attention to every single thing you eat where I think veganism is more of like a a revolutionary change of your diet in that like every single thing you eat changes whereas vegetarian you're just excluding some things you know and the like the broad structure of your diet is basically like going to stay the same it's just without meat yeah I think that's a great point but I think it's also it's also okay to for that reason to to try to do it in, in like phases right um so again like kind of cutting out what you what you cook with and then you know obviously when you go to a restaurant it can be harder but maybe that's also me rationalizing my decisions and no i mean i think so when i was vegan the thing that was really hard was that or the thing that was that was cool both cool and hard was that because i was vegan i was shopping a lot more for my groceries and cooking at home a lot more and I was eating a lot healthier because all these things are I can't eat anymore so you're forced to eat basically you're forced to eat vegetables and fruits more because the range of your diet has just shrunk to those things basically um and unless you want to eat like candy all day like you have to eat fruits and vegetables more so but like basically it just took a lot more thinking and time to do all of that and like planning like I can't just go grab like a bagel and cream cheese from Dunkin Donuts before going to work in the morning which saves me a ton of time instead I have to wake up like an hour earlier cook breakfast and then go to work and then pack lunch too like it's so I I think it is like I think it's more than just 
oh, let me first cut this out and this out and this out. I think it's kind of like you're changing, like, the way you go about your life in, yeah. in like, a, a really big way. So, Shout out to my sister. She's a, a tried and true vegan. Uh, and I don't know how. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, but I think we're going to get there. <laughs> I appreciate your faith. I think the other thing we have to mention, the other big change, uh, is that during our first, the first era of Young and Dumb, uh, we'd had the description that we were recording from the uh, moldy confines of, of an apartment in Mission Hill, Boston. And that apartment is no longer part of our lives. I never lived there like you did, fortunately, but I spent enough time there. You uh, lived there for a week. Did I? I feel um, like you stayed before you moved in mm-hmm. to the summer place. You're right. <laughs> well, the mice were still there, yes. <laughs> but now we're in a new place. <laughs> yeah, we had a joke about the mice that they were our roommates. Like, I think Albert, like, actually started growing fond of them a little. Like, I would come home and be like, I saw, I saw a few mice today. They were so cute today. They were just, I was like, bro, like, we can't normalize these mice. <laughs> Albert, uh, our roommate. But now we are in a non-mice-infested apartment. It's actually a pretty nice place. Gets a little dirty sometimes, but... Yeah. I mean, you know, some things you can't do about uh, A little meat juicy sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, let's not get into that right now. But (laughs) they're definitely... um, It's not a... Everything's not perfect in this household. No. But uh, it is a a step up. Yeah. Um... But something that you said earlier, actually, about like vegetarianism, I thought would um, would have been a good transition into what we we're talking about. Yeah. Like now, so I'm just gonna repeat it, and then you can like use this transition. All right, cool. But it was basically like saying like, um, it's not that hard to like do what you believe in. Yeah. You just have to take the first step. Some some something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have boycotted the NFL. <laughs> I don't know if that's what <laughs> Yeah, it could have gone that way or the, the, the taking the knee. Yeah, let's things. talk about taking the knee first. Um, so a year ago, Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem. And it was this very big ordeal. He got trashed by the mainstream media. Colin Kaepernick is no longer in the league, but today, in the first today, which is Sunday, um, the first game of the NFL of NFL Sunday, I think 27 players in the Jaguars Ravens game took knees, and whole teams are sitting out of the national anthem. So, yeah. I mean, all it takes is that start, and you have something. I didn't see this coming with, you know, with him essentially being blackballed from the league. Um, And, I mean, he was also, like, something I really admired about, like, his demonstrations was you could tell that, you know, like, every week he was, like, reading or learning more Mm -hmm. and would, like, bring continuously bring new perspectives to his press conferences um, you know after playing and talking about why he's protesting and talking about what's going on in the country uh, which is 
not necessarily that something that other players, even other players who were demonstrating, were doing. So I kind of thought, like, with the abs- his absence from the NFL this season, um, and not because he doesn't want to play, but because he can't get someone to sign him, I kind of thought that players would be more intimidated. Uh, but, yeah, it's particularly after um, some of the comments that Trump made about him it seemed to, like, really rejuvenate uh, the demonstration. And also uh, kind of <laughs> started to bring out some of the hypocrisy of um, some of the people involved in the NFL, owners, coaches, some former players and current players that have, you know, bashed him uh, Kaepernick in the past and are now kind of like saying, oh, I'm so disappointed in Donald Trump or, oh, maybe this is something that's actually worthwhile to do after all. I think in many ways Kaepernick was kind of like the sacrifice for this entire movement. So Michael Bennett has been taking a knee for quite some time. A bunch of players have been taking a knee since Kaepernick first took a knee. None of them have been blacklisted from the NFL. Kaepernick has almost, to the owners and to the people in the NFL who want to keep this like white supremacist status quo, I think he's taken on like a symbolic quality. No one ever makes any argument that Michael Bennett is too much of a distraction not to sign. No one ever makes that argument for Malcolm Jenkins. That is reserved for Colin Kaepernick. Even though he's honestly been less vocal than people like Bennett. So in a lot of ways, the fact that he has been blacklisted and he's been treated the way he's been treated has opened up the door for all of these other players to protest and be vocal without the same sort of repercussion. It's like this weird thing where it's all been directed at him in a weird way. Not that they aren't putting a lot on the lines by being out there and doing this, but it's, yeah, I I mean, it really seemed like a lot of this had died down by the end of last year, but it's, it's crazier than it's ever been right now. And it seems like his persona uh, it has like formed a particular threat uh, or a particular potential threat to you know more powerful NFL stakeholder holders like the owners like the commissioner in that you know like he, he might be the most famous athlete in the country at this point right and he's not even on the team like his I think still his jersey sell, sells way better than anyone else in the league like, like his name is has just transcended sport. And he's done it by resisting, like, the norms of that sport. And that's probably something that's very scary to these owners that, you know, despite the fact that uh, NFL players are making millions of dollars, these owners are worth billions, and they benefit from a lot of power that they can hold over these players and, like, not guaranteeing these con- their contracts and keeping, like, anonymity among the players and that most players you can't, see their face and recognize like oh that's this famous NFL player that in the way that you can an NBA player like there's like a lot of control over mm-hmm. players uh, in that sport in particular that isn't necessarily true of some other sports although of course those dynamics exist of you know owner power um, greatly you know uh, <laughs> being much 
uh, greater than than player power. But right. I just yeah, he I feel like he he's kind of transcended the traditional like power structures in the NFL that you know even like someone like Marshawn Lynch I've heard has never stood for the national anthem. Um, so for years of his career, didn't didn't stand. I'm not sure if that's the truth. I, I, yeah, I I think I read something like that. Yeah. So it's but again, it's like because he wasn't really stating, mm-hmm. making a, like a public display of why and like garnering that kind of like public attention about it, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't as much of a threat. So again, like even someone like Michael Bennett or Malcolm Jenkins, like for whatever reason, they haven't garnered the kind of you know. Uh, attention positive and negative that that Kaepernick has it's like it's really interesting I think in order to understand why Kaepernick's actions are so norm-breaking and so like powerfully against what the NFL stands for you have to kind of understand how important patriotism and militarism is in the context of American football how imbued it is into that sport so there's this book one of my this book I really like that I read I think over the summer it's called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk it's based it's a it's a novel and it's basically about this group of soldiers who it were in the Iraq war performed like this really heroic deed, but lost, um, a member of their team and their deed was picked up by all of the mainstream American news channels. And they were kind of like elevated to this hero status. And the book is about them getting honored at a Cowboys football game. And basically it's an exploration of how, like their trauma is used and fetishized in this context of like football and the NFL. And if you think about it, that's so true. It happens when, you know, so often you see like military members, the f- they'll surprise their family at like football games. Like it'll be the first time that like, a ch- like a daughter has seen her father in like two years and it'll be like on the football field like in front of like the stadium of people not to mention the the national anthem and all of these other sort of routines that are so core to like what happens during these games they're all just about like militarism and patriotism and even the way like people talk about football like if you've ever seen like those like college football teams promo videos they're so like steeped in the rhetoric of like war and like fighting and like the people next to me like are my bro like they look like the join the army commercials that you see on tv they they have the same sort of like theme and message <laughs> so the fact that kaepernick didn't stand for the anthem is going against this entire tradition of like how much like the nfl like reveres the military and patriotism and like just this idea of america this really like violent idea of America and then him like literally then going and talking about how the like the violence of America affects black communities like 
that's why it's so that's why it grates against the NFL's gear so much. That's why people freak the fuck out about it because it's so opposite to the core of what football is about. And football's fan bases are so indoctrinated with those ideas of militarism that they see a protest as politics, but they don't see all, like, again, this glorification of militarism, of war, as something political. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something that, you know, if you do believe that... uh, U.S. military ventures are all about protecting our freedom, which you know, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but even if you do strongly believe that, the fact that you can't see that that is a political thought just speaks to how like indoctrinated um, that fan base is, and why there's so so many gaps in logic. If you ever, if you just listen to any like sports radio where people call in and, and will talk about this kind of stuff, particularly like with Bomani Jones, right. you know, people like there's their arguments are so detached from logic, but they're also just so passionate uh, and and so sure that they like have this moral superiority um, because like again, like you said, it's like tied into the fabric of the right. sport. It's uh, <laughs> it's scary, <laughs> you know. Um, it is. It is. Um, I think another thing that I think is kind of really, really cool about this entire um, movement that's been happening is, like you were saying, it's it's not that we're bringing politics into arenas where we didn't bring politics into. It's that we're bringing our like anti-American <laughs> politics into these arenas right it, like obviously this is that they play the national anthem at every football game that's about politics but now it's about uh, now we're bringing the politics of resistance into these arenas and i think that's really really crucial for sure uh and then also recently yesterday a couple of days ago um baseball had its first player neil which is kind of wild uh just right. because i think Every other sport has at least had... I mean, I know, like, NBA players aren't allowed to kneel. Like, literally written into the rules because of... Um, what's his name? A player, like, 20 years ago was demonstrating against right. them. So they, you know, outlawed that in the NBA. But um, it's just... Yeah, it's, it's surprising that there hasn't really been a baseball player that has kind of taken on, uh, you, know, you know, the lead in... In being outspoken, I mean, I, Adam Jones. I know he had issues coming to Boston and having mm-hmm. fans uh, be racist towards him, and he was outspoken on that. But there was less of a commentary about you know uh, white supremacy right. in the country and how it's ingrained in the country, which is kind of like the <laughs> what the anthem protest is in the right. NFL. Um, right. So to have the first baseball player, Neil, and again, like as ingrained as as you know united states imperialist and military militaristic culture is in the nfl like baseball is literally yeah. like synonymous with america so right. uh it's gonna be really interesting to see if those protests grow in baseball and how fans will react there because uh yeah i think the only sport that i could see taking it worse than football might be baseball yeah and i just want to like highlight how important that is and because there is this natural discomfort we have when politics gets brought 
into a space, especially like resistance politics gets brought into a space that we're not used to having it be in. Like even I, I who like, <laughs> you know, advocate for this sort of politic, um, I get uncomfortable when it comes in certain spaces. Um, but I think it's so crucial that we do that, that these conversations happen in realms in as many realms as they can possibly happen. Because first of all, they're implicated in everything. And second of all, I think the way people avoid confronting these issues is by staying in conversations that either talk about them very tangentially or don't talk about them at all. So I, following your lead, um, started to boycott the NFL, but I had already been... Uh, in a fantasy football league and I had like paid money and everything so I was like all right how do I like boycott the NFL if I'm still like setting my fantasy lineups <laughs> so I I like benched all my players and I renamed my team boycott the NFL this is not like a huge like resistance <laughs> thing by the way this is like very minimal but it was like uh uncomfortable for me because like the people in that league I don't talk about politics with them like they don't I don't think my relationship has with them has ever allowed them to see like necessarily how political I am. They might have seen it through like my Facebook posts, but not through discussions that I've had with them, right? So it was uncomfortable uncomfortable for me to do it, but I think that the very fact that you have that discomfort is more reason to put politics into those into those spaces. And didn't you say that you also you're still starting one person in the league, right? But, I am. I picked up my boy Kaepernick, and he is the only person that I'm starting. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think uh, like that. Obviously, like you said, it's not. Um, even though it's not like this huge resistance, like it's something that is like a very personal. Um, like it's in a way it's like a personal risk to take because mm -hmm. like in, in you know in a lot of circle like people build like relationships off of like off sports right and right. and fantasy football is something that um people get like really hyped up about and and i'm i'm, I'm kind of fucking with their league mm -hmm. because you know every player who plays me is going to get a free win right but i mean yeah so i think like i think it's that's being like really, really conscious about what we can do personally, uh, even if you know we don't have the power to sign like Colin Kaepernick. But mm -hmm. yeah, like even just like choosing not to participate in these spaces, um, you know, to the to the best of our ability, I think that matters, especially because like this is not something that's isolated. Like I didn't get the idea from myself. Like like this is something that people are doing mm -hmm. to not participate in the NFL or things associated with the NFL. And I think along those lines, I also had to mention, like, <laughs> that I have to acknowledge that I was participating in NFL fandom until, you know, right before the season started. And I knew enough about how shitty the NFL was to not, like, mm -hmm. be an NFL fan about right. the way it handles cases of domestic and, like, sexual violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and also just how brutal the sport is on the people who play it and uh how their bodies particularly their minds are just 
<laughs> destroyed for the rest yeah. of their lives just for so they can you know for five or ten years like entertain fans and it's also it's just really scary too because that's not just pro players that's people who play after college and don't make it out um, don't make it to the next level that's can even happen to people who just play in high school and um, so even like in college football just like the uh, the the exploitation of players labor uh, and the risk that they the personal injury risk that they have to take to not getting out of it just like it's a bad sport uh, and the reason again like the reason that those militaristic images fit so well with the NFL is because it is a violent sport so like the the symbols of violence of war of battle that uh, that particularly like you mentioned that college football teams use they use it because it aligns with the way that the, the sport uh, is played so I it's just hard like when it's kind of like with our conversation with vegetarianism earlier like if you just kind of acknowledge those things to yourself it made it very hard for me to even think about you know enjoying the sport but I still did until mm-hmm. uh, until now so I kind of have to to own that uh, and kind of be aware that the NFL's flaws extend just beyond uh just white supremacy or not signing Kaepernick right we're very good at compartmentalizing and I think that's that's one of the hardest things about being someone who pays attention to politics and cares about like inequities in society is you slowly and slowly realize that everything is implicated and things you really like and enjoy contribute to the same sort of inequities that in another realm you can so easily spot and call out and hate and not participate in but then it happens in the realm that you like and it becomes a lot harder Mm -hmm. to do that um so that's that's a constant battle and it's not good enough to throw up your hands and say well everything sucks you know you have to keep trying to be better every day so i think that's really important the last thing I wanted to talk about is the fact that this entire movement is happening on Twitter. <laughs> um, I think we've talked about Twitter and like the internet and social media on this podcast before, but it I don't I don't think I had a good enough understanding of what Twitter was. Like you were on Twitter and you were always kind of like t- telling me like get more on Twitter, get more on Twitter, <laughs> but. I, I didn't really get on Twitter until, like, really, really get on Twitter until after Trump was elected. And now, like, I am always on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and, man, everything is on Twitter, man. Like, the entire political world right now is on Twitter. Donald Trump's policies are being announced on Twitter. Like, his news feed is the most <laughs> important, like, thing to keep up with in the world or his uh, his twitter feed and the entire reason that the take a knee blew up over the weekend was because like saturday morning twitter was just blowing up uh about trump's comments the previous night 
and players, like individual players, were coming out and making these tweets in a way that I've just never seen players engage in politics before. But it was all happening on Twitter. It was all happening through tweets. So I just, I just wanted to talk about that for a little and hear about what you, what you thought. Yeah, I mean, just speaking of that, uh, there's also the fact that, you know, the Warriors won the championship last the basketball championship right. last year and they're debating about going to visit the white house i'm pretty sure that they're going to decide not to go yeah uh but then donald trump goes maybe maybe via tw- i think it was via twitter he's like oh stephen curry yeah. doesn't know if he wants to come well right. invitation revoked <laughs> right <laughs> and then the best part just like and i think this also happened um on saturday morning when lebron james was like you bum <laughs> <laughs> you never wanted to go to the white house anyway and just like being able to go on Twitter and see the best basketball player in the world called the president of the United States it's, a bum. It's absurd. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful to me. And I think that is that is what is so valuable to me about Twitter is not just how quickly information can circulate, but the your ability to curate like what you the the commentary and analysis that you have access to not that like you bum is necessarily <laughs> analysis but uh, just you know even five years ago when Twitter wasn't you know what it was it would be a lot harder to get the kinds of reactions to uh, Donald Trump's speech in Alabama that really riled people mm-hmm. up just you know because it, it, you can go on CNN and yeah they'll be talking about it but not in a way that really resonates with me and with you and with a whole lot of people that are on Twitter Uh, and just again like yeah being able to see individual players who have such big fan bases like like really say like this is ridiculous Uh, this is not gonna shut up protests this is gonna make us want to protest more people like literally retweeting that like I think Jamel Hill might have tweeted it out uh, and then like players were just like retweeting it today uh, D Wade, Dwayne Wade was like thanking Jamel Hill for standing mm-hmm. up, thanking other athletes for standing up. Like that is just like that kind of discourse is really cool to see. And then not to mention that there's actually like not, not just you know um, higher profile celebrities having commentary, but just real like political commentary that again like I just won't see from Don Lemon or right. um, who, I mean I actually. I think I've heard that Don Lemon has gotten better in recent yeah, months. Yeah, he, he, I think he's been changed by the Trump election. <laughs> so I need to choose somebody else that CNN to shit on. Um, but I won't get it from Piers Morgan, you know. Uh, so it's, I just, it's really cool to see. It's, I think it's, it's the nature of the medium because, you know, if you're, like, scrolling through Twitter and, like, looking at the president's tweets, LeBron James could also be scrolling through Twitter and looking at the exact same thing that you're looking at. Like, that sort of equality and that, like, idea that we're all, like, seeing the same conversation happen together, that, like, that creates a sort of, like, idea we were talking about earlier where, like, everything is, like, connected to everything else. Like, that makes it easy for for, politi- for politicians and athletes and entertainers to all be a part of the exact same conversation. Yeah. You know? And that's super cool because... I think before Twitter and before social media, like everything was so siloed, like you, you could get your information on ESPN and they would only talk about sports or, and then you would turn the channel to MSNBC and they would only talk about politics. So it was so easy to like 
switch realms of the conversation and never have those realms uh, like intersect. Now, it doesn't really work that way. Like, everything is in the same place, you know? Yeah. It's also cool to see how uh, Twitter has just changed the media in that, in terms of politics and also just pop culture, things that become viral on Twitter, then, like, you know, the higher profile uh, media organizations will, like, be forced to engage in those conversations in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And then the next evolution of that is, like, if people get, you know, video of uh, a really important event or or just, like, a funny video mm-hmm. and, uh, like, the press desk of Twitter accounts will be like, hey, can we use this video on our channel? And now it's, like, all those tweets have, like, five responses being, like, make sure you ask them to pay you. Uh, <laughs> and just, like, in the ways that, like, Twitter users are, are learning how to, uh, like, kind of leverage right. the... Uh, the discourse that they've created to make sure that it's not like exploited by mm-hmm. um, these corporations that don't really care about right. <laughs> um, what's being talked about. They just care that it's being talked about. Right. Then that that's the other danger of Twitter is that suddenly like these corporations make these accounts and they start to speak in the same language as like normal people speak. Like I hate the Wendy's, the Wendy's. Twitter <laughs> account, man. Like yeah. they try to be like young and millennial and cool and like try to do all this shit. But, like, and, like, people really like it, but my whole thing is, like, behind that is just this blank corporate entity that all they care about is that you start liking them so that they can make more money. Their their end goal for this entire charade is, like, just making more money. So, like, (laughs) let's not pretend, like, they're cool because, like, they're trying to manipulate, like, use this language to manipulate us, you know? It's like the new wave of corporate social responsibility. Exactly. (laughs) But instead of... uh, recycling more we're just going to use slang on twitter <laughs> yeah and like can like talk to people individually the the other thing i kind of want to talk about twitter was kind of i know this conversation kind of happens often but um i i think like so much about the internet has changed over the last year that this conversation has changed and so the thing I'm talking about is basically like kind of this idea of like quote unquote slacktivism and the idea of like so if I guess if I guess the the, the real question I want to ask is to what extent does mobilization on Twitter on the in- internet like movement building on Twitter translate to movement building in like more tangible arena like policy or like something like that like to what extent does us being able to like galvanize like this entire sport and like you know like having all these players like take knees and everything like to what extent will that translate to like people not being suppressed in their trying to vote you know yeah it won't (laughs) i mean well like i i think with anything you had to be real realistic about what you expect from it and i think expecting anything you know of grand political magnitude to come out of like to directly come out of nfl players taking knees uh is it's not realistic mm-hmm. because like what it what exactly are people 
is the NFL, what is exactly is the U.S. political system losing from mm-hmm. uh, NFL players taking knees? Nothing. So, like, there's not going to be any response in terms of, like, voter suppression or, like, anything, you know, larger scale that, uh, that, will, that will come from that. That said, like, I think just because, I think just because something doesn't translate into, like, this large-scale transition of government doesn't mean that doesn't have value. And I think that NFL players claiming power can do a lot for their status in the league. And I think that's great for them. But also, I think it's just very cool that there is now a growing culture of resistance that you know expands beyond like the thinking of the two-party system and where people can like look at Kaepernick as like a culture and like political icon Mm. and people can like we're normalizing ideas of resistance and I think that does and can help translate to uh more like I get like broader political mobilization um so I, I guess I see that as the biggest value um where again it's like becoming cool to and not to everyone but in a lot of circles to be critical of uh where we live and the institutions that operate where we live and to start acting against them but we also i think the challenge is that we have to make it clear to ourselves and to other people uh again like what our actions uh what the realistic expectation for the result of our actions is and not not get stuck in um, thinking that these like grand political displays or pu- like these public displays of our political views are what it's going to take to make change. Right. If that makes sense. No, I, I, I think you said it perfectly. Um, there is no... Nothing's going to happen to Donald Trump because people are taking knees. Like, that's not going to necessarily not get him reelected in 2020. That's, you know, no policy is going to change because of this. But I think you're right in that the very act of resistance is a goal in itself, is an end in itself, and has all of these sort of less clear but still very real effects on just the way we go about politics in our lives. And like you were saying, it's cooler now to be uh, in this mode of resistance. And I want to add to that, it's less cool to be in a mode of complacency. Mm -hmm. Like this idea that was really popular maybe like a couple years ago that, you know, we need to hear all sides and being center uh, and like be in the center and like understand like that idea is like being attacked right now. And I'm so happy (laughs) to see that. And so happy that like, if anything's coming out of this, it's like this idea that like, we have to like actually take a stand on politics and we can't act like everyone is on this equal moral playing field and no one is more right or wrong than anyone else. Like, obviously that's all total bullshit and, I'm glad that that's being taken down. And I mean, I just, this kind of, I'm now thinking of just like, you know, the state of a few year, years ago or the states of uh, sports, like in, right. in us, for us growing up and, yeah. you know, 
uh, when we were growing up, like there was no chance that my favorite football or basketball team would make like a huge display about right. what's wrong right. <laughs> with this country. And I think that we can't underestimate like how formative that can be for people who really do idolize, um, you know, sports teams or mm-hmm. their favorite sports players, um, other like high profile people that are, that are starting to, uh, challenge, uh, the, the myth of the, what the U S is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, it's, it is the, the hardest thing is like moving uh, into a, an understanding of what we need to do to to start to actually challenge um, the structures that we oppose, you know, because um, it's one thing to, to, to recognize that things aren't okay or things aren't good and never have been good, but then moving against that, that's like where it gets hard. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think... I. I think it's really interesting that all of this right now is happening in the realm of sports. Like, that's the area of culture where we're seeing this, like, political explosion. Because if you think about it, sports, unlike, say, music or even, like, TV and movies, is a place where every... You have a limited number of options, and like the cult the, that sports as like a form of culture itself, like doesn't necessarily reflect our identities in the same way as like watching TV might. Like so, like like Joe and I really like to watch like Atlanta and Master of None and other like shows that like reflect our identity. You can't do that in the same way with sports. I guess you could say maybe like baseball is like a wider sport. But baseball is also way less popular with everyone across all <laughs> identities. Like, the two really, really popular sports, basketball and football, are popular with, also with people across identities. Um, so, I think, I guess, I guess it kind of makes sense in that way, because, like, we kind of all <laughs> watch basketball and football. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I think the, the thing that I'm really anxious to see since we now see this resurgence of, of the, the movement to take a knee, mm-hmm. is, if, is how players are going to frame their resistance and if they're going to frame it in you know, the context of a larger struggle mm-hmm. in the way that I think Colin Kaepernick has done really well and you mentioned Michael and his brother Martellus Ben. I think they've, they've all done that really well. Because I think that is like really what's probably the most important thing in in influencing people and mm-hmm. their understanding of um, how to resist. Right. Uh, and again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but that like Colin Kaepernick has continued to um, educate himself and like further his understanding of um, what resistance means is like that is really important if you are going to you know try to like take a stand. And I think. A lot of times, if you already have a platform, it it can be harder to, uh, you know, challenge yourself to like advance like your ideology for like lack of better words because like you it just like you kind of someone puts a mic in your face and like mm-hmm. what do you think and then right you say what you think um, but so that I think that would be really 
be interesting to, to see in the coming weeks. And the discussion has to be way deeper than just, I hate Trump. Mm. Like, mass, mass incarceration is happening independent of whether Trump is being elected. Police brutality and killing of black people is happening independent of whether Trump is in office. Like, that was the point of the protest, right. and now it has kind of transformed into an anti-Trump thing. So I think it's really, really important to bring it back to the core, which is a much more. I think being anti-Trump is a lot of a lot of Americans, a lot of white people are okay with that, uh, but a lot less white Americans are okay with being against police brutality against black people and being against mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And we talked earlier about uh, you know the the people in power in the NFL, the owners and the commissioner, like them being scared of this kind of discourse. And I think to the point that you just made is why we're seeing a lot of those owners deflect the message of protest to um, the comments that Trump made about Ka Kaepernick last mm -hmm. week or yeah, a couple of days ago. Right. Uh, and are trying to frame this as, you know, an, an issue about Donald Trump or an issue about, uh, you know, diversity inclusion right <laughs> you know right. watering down the the message right um, so yeah that, it can't that definitely can't be lost definitely cool well that's uh that was a a good a good start i could feel our our wheels starting to turn yeah I, th I think i was a little rusty at the beginning but i think we we started to pull it together yeah i'm excited to see what we do next week <laughs> when we just can jump into our, our best form right away next week is the key phrase of that yep. <laughs> statement we i think this is what this is either the third or the fourth revival of our podcast yeah. <laughs> and each of the last four episodes has been a revival yeah so but uh we see we we talked about this we think we're ready yeah, we're definitely ready. We don't have the crazy schedules that we... Well, mm -hmm. we're ready. <laughs> we're ready. Let's just say that. Cool. Well, uh, thank you for um, spending the, the time to talk about this. It's good to be back. And uh, I hope that you all have a nice rest of your day. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.